You're listening to Were You Still Talking? They pump out your blood and they pump in a, a new batch of blood and all of it is the blood of children. All the big stars are going to be on TV now. I mean, it's just the way it's going. Your role, I think, will be played by Brad Pitt. What'd you wear? Uh, I wore my loincloth wrapped around my feet. Are you going by John today? And that's absolutely true. You feel it in every cell in your body. Yeah, you can, you can bend the truth and bend the visualizations no matter what your political affiliation. You could have an alpaca. My a, a girlfriend's daughter recently got married and they had llamas or alpacas at the wedding. A recording room. They recorded uh, a couple songs in the kitchen of Rumbo. So, wait, you, you, you microdosed before this, right? What? Hey, welcome back. This is Joel Albrecht, and you are on another episode. Thanks for dropping in. Today in my studio, or on the Zoomio actually, I have Michelle Dickinson. She is a mental health advocate. She has written a book about it. She has uh, done, she's doing work. Well, she's done a lot of work. It, it, it's, it's too much for me to even explain in one quick intro. Before I get to her, I have some quick housekeeping uh, I want to talk about Podnods. It's a new um, place to get your podcasts. Not only mine, but if you're looking for podcasts, you want to check out some new ones. It's called Podnods. And it's, a, it's really for discovering podcasts. You can still hear the podcast in your favorite app, wherever you are. Uh, Podno- Podnods lets listeners keep their favorite podcast player and still find podcasts um, that might not might not show up in your player normally. It's a big, wide world of podcasts. So check out podnods.com. And now, back to my guest. Uh, Michelle is a mental health advocate, and partly because she's had a history with it herself, but she has helped children, employers, employees. Uh, something I'm really think is awesome work. And um, thanks so much for, for coming to the show. Thank you so much for having me and for the invitation to be here. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, like I say, I really admire the work that you're doing. I think it's really important work, um, especially now. And I know that you have been focusing on um, people's mental health during the COVID crisis. And, yeah. um, but even before that, like what, what drew you to be a mental health advocate? I know you have quite a story. Sure, sure. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, there, there's such power in storytelling. Um, and I think that's why I do the work I do. So I, you know, I, um, my story starts with growing up with a mother who had bipolar disorder mm-hmm. and seeing what that was like from the lens of a child and then caring for her. Um, so that pretty much shaped my childhood and, you know, seeing what mental illness looked like over there and seeing the effects of it. And then, you know, I had about a 19 year career in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I was very fortunate to have been able to sort of transcend that experience that shaped me as a little girl with my mom and have a really great career. And then I found myself giving a TED talk about the experience of caring for my mother. I was nominated to be on the TED stage and tell that story. And I got really connected to wanting to um, use my story to elevate the conversation and the understanding of mental health 
um, you know, for people, because there's a lot of people who don't have a relationship, like a, like a healthy relationship where they just haven't been affected by a mental illness. So, um, the power of telling that story on the stage would lead me to write my memoir, would lead me to start doing some speaking and having people understand it from my experience. Um, yeah. And then I just got really connected to, you know, if I wanted to make a bigger difference, I could actually be the change that I wanted to see in the world just by telling my story and going first. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. That's And you're also telling it through a podcast, I, I, I noticed. <laughs> you you have your own podcast. Uh, how, when did you, how long has that been going? How's that? You know, it's actually a live stream. You know, Joel, mm -hmm. I got very I got very antsy. So I have since left the pharmaceutical industry and started my own mental health company. So I work with, I work with companies to really look at their culture, to elevate the compassion for people with invisible disabilities and also elevate the resilience of people, especially now. But I was getting antsy. Business development can take a while. So I said, what else could I do? <laughs> what else yes. could I do to change the world? And I said, well, why don't I just have more open conversations about mental health? So three months ago, I started just bringing people into my live stream conversation um, to talk about their experience with mental illness and then also bring in clinicians, bring in experts to help educate us. Because I think through open conversation, education, inspiration, we can all sort of elevate this, the volume of mental health awareness. And when we do, we can diminish the stigma. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me that I, I see a lot of people posting on Facebook about their issues. And I'm always a little shocked because it, it seems like, I mean, that's a very public place to do it. On the mm -hmm. other hand, I understand, you know, if it's helpful for them in some way and, and maybe it helps other people too, to see that they're not the only ones. I mean, I know there's a lot of people really having a hard time, uh, always have been, but I know it's, it's really been amplified during COVID-19. I mean, I feel it myself. I, I, I can't, it just, it really gets on you. Um, so many, yeah. so in so many ways, you know, so many different things, the world seems a lot less stable to me right now. So, um, yeah, it, it's and hard to get through that. Yeah. We're human beings that are, um, we actually crave connection mm -hmm. and interaction. And when, you know, when we're told you need to quarantine, you need to stay by yourself or stay with your immediate family. It's like, it's a completely different experience. So yeah, now is, is really hard for people. You know, the CDC says one in three are dealing with anxiety or depression. And I had interviewed the president of Mental Health America, who said, I think we're moving toward one in two dealing with anxiety or depression. So if we can look at those numbers and say, oh, my goodness, how many people are in my circle who are affected, who may or may not be talking about it? Um, it's very real. And before we went on the air, we talked about seasonal depression. This is the winter months for many of us they're hard. And then you compound quarantine and COVID and, you know, political energy and, you know, social injustice and all of these things can really sort of uh, pull us out of the game of life and have us feel, you know, um, unmotivated or un you know, disengaged. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things, this podcast has actually been a savior for me because 
I didn't know what I would, I thought I was just going to not do it because I've been, I, it's so much better in a studio to be honest, but then my uh, wife was working on Zoom, so I discovered that, well, Zoom's kind of cool in some ways. I mean, I can make this work. I can record, you know, mm -hmm. this, is, this works. So it's been very helpful to have people from all over the U.S. and uh, soon around the world, you know, come into my house virtually and be able to talk to them and be able to talk to them about different things. Um, but yeah, I'm, I would be one of those one and two. I mean, I've experienced anxiety that I've never experienced before, but I've had some, some moments that it was like, oh, this must be what anxiety is like. And right out of the blue, you know, just, yeah, it's strange times. Um, of course, it's always when you're trying to sleep, not always, but a lot of the times, yeah. uh, just suddenly the mind goes to strange places and does bizarre things. Um, and it yeah. is hard, harder when it's, because when it's dark, it's not only that we don't get vitamin D, which of course is huge for your brain working right, but um, it's harder to get out and walk, which is the thing we, the, the minimum I try and do is to walk every day. And uh, <laughs> that's not always so easy when it's, 41 degrees and cold fog. And I know that's not cold to you Minnesotans, but uh, it's still, it's still cold. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I completely understand that uh, this is a, it just gets harder. I mean, spring is coming soon. Hopefully a lot of things will ease up this pressure, but um, yeah, you, you're also been working specifically with uh, companies in trying to deal with uh, mental advocacy and, um, yeah, talk a little bit about that. How does that work? Yeah, you know, I uh, when I was working at my Fortune 50 company, I was leading um, with a team, uh, the first employee resource group for mental health, which was amazing because what we were doing is we were building a community of support for employees, not only for employees affected by mental illness themselves, but for uh, employees who had a loved one affected by a mental illness. So we sort of were building and creating this movement, this culture shift to really eradicate stigma and have more open conversation. And I learned a ton. I watched what didn't work. I watched what did work. And um, when I left the industry, I said, that's exactly what I'm going to do. There's so much opportunity to really help leaders understand the, the simple things they can be doing to cultivate a culture of compassion, mm -hmm. uh, truly mm -hmm. compassionate um, leadership, heart-centered leadership. So yeah, so I have been working with companies now during the pandemic, mostly actually to build resilience in employees because, you know, employees are a lot of people are working from home, they're isolated, they're disconnected from their teams, they're having Zoom calls, um, and their well-being is starting to be compromised. So a lot of companies want to empower them proactively around their mental health. So I've been able to work and deliver my resilience program to many organizations and, and employees just to help keep them in the cockpit of their life, work and life. And it's great that there are companies that are realizing that that's important because it, I don't know why it was kind of ignored for so many years. Um, I won't point to the pharmaceutical industry because you used to work for them. <laughs> I know. I mean, when we were kids, uh, I'm lucky my mom uh, didn't have didn't have that. My dad probably did. He drank, but that was, you know, when I was young, they the MD, you know, your regular doctor, just would prescribe you something, 
you know, just take these. Usually it was Valium. You'll feel better. Yeah. And yeah, they're starting to figure out that that is not the best way to go about things. And it's interesting because the more I read about mental, uh, mental illness and people with mental problems, the more I'm seeing that um, the articles I read are all about the brain and how people's brains are different and how people's brains are affected by what happens to them as children. And so to, I always thought that, well, if you give them more stuff to affect their brain, I don't know how helpful that's going to be. Um, you know, I know some people, I, are, yeah. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think it has, yes, the pharmaceutical industry, they do have life-saving drugs. I'm not going to, I'm not going to diminish that, but I also yep. think it's, it, yep. it's the prescriber, it's the doctors, right? Like, so I have an amazing doctor where I actually, I happen to get diagnosed with depression going through a life event issue. I'm adopted. So I, I never thought I would deal with my mother's bipolar, but I was going through a major life event and I found myself depressed. So I went to my doctor, uh, a, a therapist, and I asked him for medication. I'm like, this is hard. I can't do it. And he actually, I was so refreshed by this. He actually said, no, Michelle, no, you actually need to find healthy vices and navigate what you're going through. If I give you a pill, it's, it's going to numb you from the experience and you probably need to just navigate it. So I found healthy vices to navigate it and I continued to see him, but he was not so quick to give me a pill. And I was grateful for that in the long run, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's fantastic. That is that's always good to hear. I mean, I've heard other stories on my podcast of people that, that you know, they had the right help. And that I think that's really important. And that, that's a really refreshing to hear that. Um, you know, more and more I'm, I'm seeing doctors that are trying, you know, trying not to have that that's not the answer. I still see enough that that is the answer. But, you know, I went through some, uh, some chronic pain issues and, you know, they were very careful about what, what they wanted to give me or not give me. And um, so that's, it's good that that's changing. It's really good yeah. that that's changing. And uh, what, so what kind of stuff did you find? What, what, what kind of vices did you my turn to? Vices? It was interesting because my cousin had challenged me to do a triathlon. Oh, wow. And I was like, I've never done a triathlon. I barely, barely finished a half marathon, like maybe even like six years before that. But you know, that training for the triathlon and surrounding myself with my friends um, really helped me. You know, mm -hmm. because I was, you know, exercise is a natural endorphin high, helps you feel better. I was eating better because I wanted to perform better. So I was getting good nutrition. All of that helped me feel better physically and mentally. Um, and that really was the healthy vice that I, that I leaned on. Um, and, and I'm so grateful. I learned that that exercise can really you know, when I'm having moments right now, like with seasonal depression, I know that getting to the gym or doing something uh, for my physical body is going to help me feel better. Absolutely. I, yeah, I had some back problems where I couldn't exercise for a couple of years. And that's where I felt my worst mentally in, because I had, I had always exercised different ways. I mean, I was, I love going to the gym, um, whether it's a treadmill or lifting weights or whatever it is. And I got to a point where I couldn't do that, made a huge difference. I always tell people as often as I can on my podcast, if you're able to exercise, exercise, <laughs> because mm -hmm. there may be a day when you're not physically able to. And so do it if you can, whatever it is, whether, 
whether it's to get healthier or to feel better, you will, you will feel better. And, you know, if you don't like gyms, play basketball or badminton or something. There's like I tell, I tell people all the time, I don't exercise because I like it. I exercise because I like the endorphin high. Right, right. Which is, yeah, it's interesting because I love exercise. I'm, I'm one of these people that I like. I learned in, I think it was junior high. I had this teacher that was a, a kind of a nutball, but he, he had a physical, he had like a cross training class before cross training, long before cross training, but that was his deal. We would run and jump ropes and lift weights. And, uh, you know, so I kind of fell in love with it way back when I was young. And, um, when I couldn't do it, the time or the times that I just haven't done it, uh, I definitely feel it. I definitely feel the difference. Now I'm just able to get to walk some more and start to exercise again, and um, yeah, just makes such a huge difference. Now triathlon, whoa, that's that's over my head. <laughs> you know, but it's like anything. You break it down. If you break it down into a small, how do you eat an elephant? What elephant? What? One bite at a time, right? You break it down. <laughs> but honestly, exercise, just to sort of, I want to dovetail on this because in my resilience program, I talk about this. The exercise actually helps you sleep better. And sleep is so important for mental well being. The, the first challenge, if you're having a mental imbalance, you need to check your sleep routine. So if, if you're not sleeping well, exercise can actually contribute to you getting a restful night's sleep. So don't underestimate the power of exercise in sleep and um, and how you'll feel because being well rested is really good for your brain. That makes a lot of sense because uh, I mean it's one of the main things I hear from people that don't feel well mentally is that they they get insomnia. You know they end up staying up all night and being up all night and it seems like it's happened a lot more. I've heard about it a lot more during. COVID. I mean, I've always had friends with insomnia, but I'm seeing, it seems like I'm seeing more of it. And I know that it, for me, it helps a ton and endorphins are proven to help sleep. So that that's a really good point. It makes a huge, it makes a huge difference. And yet more and more science is, you know, discovering how much sleep deprivation can, how damaging it can be. And we kind of have an epidemic in America, I guess, of sleep deprivation. So yeah, it's a it's a really good point. So, yes, uh, everyone start their triathlon training today. <laughs> just go for a walk. Just go just, for a walk. Just do what Joel would do. Go for a go walk. Go for a twenty six mile walk and then a hundred mile <laughs> bike ride, and then you'll be back tomorrow. It'll be fine. And you also, you said you wrote your memoirs. Let's, um, what's the name of the book? Breaking Into My Life. So that, that sounds, that seems really hard to me too. You, you really wrote uh, a personal book about your struggles. Yeah. And um, yeah, how, how was that? How long did that take? I'm always oh. amazed when anyone can write a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a labor of love, I have to say, but um, I was always the insecure woman who didn't think she had a voice mm -hmm. because growing up with your growing up with a mom who has bipolar disorder or a mental illness, you know, we always put the needs of my mother first. So any need that I had or any voice that I had was always like insignificant. So throughout my life, I struggled with my own insecurities for a very, very long time. And then when I got nominated to stand on the red dot and tell my story, holy smokes. Um, 
it was terrifying, but exhilarating because I'm standing on the stage. I'm telling my story in like what, 13 minutes it's over. And like confidence came from nowhere. I finally had like, oh my goodness, like I have a voice and people are listening to me. And when people started to come out of the woodwork and go, oh my gosh, that was amazing. And I think I, you know, I think my mother might've been bipolar or I have a loved one that, that struggles with bipolar in your story. Oh my goodness. When I realized the difference, it gave me the confidence to say, I'm going to write this. I'm going to write my memoir. It was an idea. Mm-hmm. I, when I realized my voice mattered, when I realized that what I had to say could actually make a difference, I said, that's it. I'm writing my memoir. So for four years, Joel, it took me four years to sit there and write this story and relive my childhood as it was like incredibly emotional. We're talking, there was abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. My, my mother was not nice. Um, but I unearthed all those emotions so that I could really capture what that experience was like for my reader. And, um, yeah, after four years, I couldn't have been more proud that I put in, I put in the effort, I put in the tears and I came out with a book that I'm, I'm actually really proud of and, and that I know is making a difference for people who might feel alone. So that's awesome. And I mean, that's really I'm sure it was hard, but it must also be therapeutic to go through that and, you know, to kind of, that's almost like therapy, right? To, to write that out and get it down. I mean, it's, it's like journaling, yeah. but letting everyone else read the journal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. because, and because I'd never written a book before, um, I got myself a writing coach and I often told her that she was like doubling as a therapist because we would sit there and dissect like experiences that I had so that I could vividly share them. She would say, we have to vividly share this experience. So you need to get into the feeling, into the, what was the smell in the room? What was the energy in the room? How were you feeling? You have to get into that place again so you can bring your readers with you on a journey. And I did it. And yeah, it was definitely a cathartic journey for sure. Wow, that sounds like a really good writing coach. That that's yeah, that's awesome. You <laughs> you were lucky to have that person. That is really cool. Really cool. Uh, you also created five steps to cultivating culture of compassion, and this is um, this is something that seems really important to me. That you know, because it's the last thing that you see in a lot of companies. I know some companies are trying, but yeah, you know, the more think, companies realize that it's important to be compassionate and to understand the people that, that are working for them, with them. I, I love the companies, Joel, that are realizing that caring for your people goes beyond the 800 employee assistance line, that they have to do more for their people. So yeah, so I created on my website, michelledickinson.com, Um, I created five steps to cultivating a culture of compassion and they're not that hard to do, but if, but if leaders take these steps, they can start to shift their culture and create a more inclusive, compassionate space. So the first thing um, that leaders can do is really set a clear vision and a commitment for inclusion. And that's inclusion of people of invisible disabilities, physical disabilities, all people of different abilities um, and have that remit at the highest levels of the organization backed by policies. 
So it sets the tone. This is how we're going to run our business. This is why it matters. So that's the first step. The second step is have robust and easily accessible mental health support. Lead by example. Show your people that their mental wellness matters. So no barriers, no waiting a month for a therapist, having them have the ability to access a therapist when they need it. Um, education and training for people leaders. I didn't tell you this part of my story. When I was diagnosed with depression, I told my boss, I thought I need to lead by example. I told mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. and she said to me, you know what? Six months later in my performance review, you didn't make the mark. You didn't bring your bubbly, upbeat self to work every day. Oh, and when she no. That, when she told me that, I, there was this hole in the pit of my stomach but that just screamed that this people leader does not know how to interact or care for her people when they're dealing with something that's non-physical. So that's what lit the fire in my belly to say, we need more education for people leaders. These people leaders are the face of your organization. And that's such an important role. So education and training for people leaders is number three. Number four, um, a structured employee peer support community or an employee um, resource group. Mm -hmm. the, the best thing you can do is have your own employees who are willing share their stories, connect with other employees. If they've navigated depression, if they've navigated some type of a breakdown and they've come back to the workplace, they're beacons of hope. They're the ones that can show that they've come through the other side and it's possible if someone might be struggling. So harness your own human capital, basically, and, and have that be a, a tool to support one another. And then number five is a culture that's ready for employee sharing platforms. So what I mean by that are, you know, having even um, vignettes or, you know, you don't have to have a TED stage, but you could have roundtable discussions. You could have panel discussions for May, Mental Health Awareness Month. We are openly talking about mental health and the resources the company offers and things employees can do to care for themselves. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I always love to tell my, my customers, my clients that I'm working with is, do you have a leader in your organization who's navigated something himself or herself? Because you'd be amazed the tone that that can set for the organization if they just go first and say, hey, you know what? When I was in my ex position, I dealt with severe anxiety. You know, I found tools. I, I came back to work even stronger. Like that sets the tone within the organization that even members of the senior senior level are human beings just like you. So that's a great opportunity. Yeah, and that seems like it wouldn't be that hard if one in three people, um, you know, suffer from some type of mental illness. Then there's got to be people in upper management that are, have been there, been there, done that, come through it, figured out a way, uh, yeah. or maybe they're still struggling and, and need help as well. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I really, I, I really love all those. <laughs> Put them on a pedestal. And then of course the ego and the persona takes over and we just like assume that they have perfect lives, but they're human beings. They navigate life just like we do. You know, and if they were to go first and tell their story, I bet it would make people within the organization feel like, oh my gosh, like if it's okay for him to talk about it or her to talk about it, then like, why am I hiding it? I'm human too. Yeah, right.
that that totally makes sense. I mean, absolutely. Uh, you also have done a lot of work with youth, which um, one of the organizations, CASA, is, is pretty active here too. Um, so thanks for doing that. <laughs> and how, I mean, that, that seems like a good place to start with, you know, to get people as young as possible. Um, imagine, but, imagine raising a generation where there was no mental health stigma to be removed. Like that's, that's where I'm coming from, raising healthy kids with healthy relationships to their brains. Mm -hmm. So they, they're open and talking about their well-being and, and, and how they feel before they hit a crisis. So we don't have to remove a stigma for them, you know, when they, when they grow up. So, yeah. So I've always been connected to wanting to help youth. And I was a CASA. I was a big, big sister with the big brothers, big sisters organization. And then I found myself um, in a leadership program and they said, you know, if you could change the world, what would you do? And that's when I created my children's program. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Just the way you are to teach children um, how to nourish their body, how to nourish their mind and give them leadership skills. Those are the three pillars of the program. And yeah, it's, it's all about teaching kids empathy, compassion, um, celebrating their individuality, bolstering their self-esteem so that they're not uh, vulnerable for bullying, that they know who they are, that they love themselves, um, that they respect diversity. So yeah, that program, um, ran for several years um, in in sort of like the after school enrichment like sort of uh, structure and then we moved over and we we um, before the pandemic we did it as a um, wellness fair like an all-day wellness fair where we had kids actually running booths teaching other kids how to nourish their body through different um, you know nutrition conversations uh, bucket filling exercises, um, you know, wishes, what were their wishes for the world, gratitude, all those great things that really the soft skills that um, are so important to get into them so that they, you know, just sort of feel empowered about who they are and, and love themselves. Yeah, it's really important to get just as early as possible, I think, because the I mean, uh, this is kind of off topic, but there's an epidemic of obesity in this country. And that epidemic is not just the companies pushing fat food, but also it's it seems like a mental epidemic to me as well, that a lot of people eat f for emotional reasons, you know, yeah. and, and the more you eat for emotional reasons, the more you're going to want to. It's right. So the younger you can teach someone that, yeah, you are OK, this is, you know, you're, you're okay just as you are and here's yeah. some ways to to help with all with different issues um yeah you know and the that's more we're gonna... exactly that's exactly why i created the program when i looked at what was going on in the world i saw the childhood obesity epidemic and i saw the bullying mm -hmm. and i thought if we could tackle the bullying and the obesity epidemic by teaching children how to nourish their body and how to nourish their minds we could diminish that and that was the whole goal of why I created the program. So you're, you're totally on point and having them have a healthy relationship to food and understand food is fuel for the body. And are you fueling your body? So you feel good. And then how that all ties into the brain and all of that. Yeah.
That's yeah. That seems like a really great thing to be teaching kids. It's so important, and and I don't know how much you know. Schools need to adopt those programs more. I know some schools are, but they need to more and more, and even teach parents those kind of things.、Um, yeah, it it would really help. And bullying today is nothing like when I was a kid. When I was a kid, bullying happened in the schoolyard, and I'm sure it still does. But when you take it、uh, out of the schoolyard and onto your phone, I just I can't imagine. I, you know, I can't imagine the entire, the entire town. First of all, and then if it happens to get bigger,、uh, um, hundreds of thousands of people jumping on this, this,、uh, you know, with a bully perhaps, and,、yeah. and attacking somebody who has no idea how to negotiate life, much less how to negotiate,、um, you know, the world of social media. And all that—it's—it's just—it's got to be—it's got to be really hard. I mean, you—you you can't possibly know when you're young how to ignore those things. Yeah. You know, it's like we—we grow up and learn that.、Uh, my motto is "Don't read the comments," and <laughs> you can't—you just can't do that as a kid. And、um, so it's something I always like to bring up with people. The good and bad of social media, because I know there's a lot of tough parts about it, but I know like you're using it to do good. So what do you, what do you think of that? And you know,、mm-hmm. ways to make that a more positive area. Yeah, you know, it's it's all about when it comes down to it. It's all about managing social media and leveraging it to our advantage, right? It means. Monitoring how much you're looking at it because people don't realize subconsciously you are comparing yourself when you're looking at these social media platforms. Whether or not you realize it, you know, do do yourself a favor and assess how you feel before and after time spent on social media. And if you feel worse, there's your answer. And most of the time. If you spend you know X amount of time on a social media app, you come away and you're either annoyed or you don't feel good. So assess how you feel before and after. And then the next thing I would say, remove social media as apps on your phone and give yourself a break, and maybe restrict it to accessing it on your computer. So the tendency to go there and scroll and look when you're when you're just sitting and and maybe just you know. You're watching television. the The urge to do that will go away, or take a detox, or do that deleted from your phone for a week and see how you feel. You know, it's all about controlling it. You know, I do this thing in my resilience program for my for my、uh, companies about the first seventeen seconds when you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes are the most powerful. Seventeen seconds because you can set the trajectory for your day. If you choose to roll over, grab your phone, and start scrolling on social media, you're setting the tone. Versus if you wake up in the morning and you think about what you're grateful for. So I, I urge people to like leave the phone out of the bedroom, to not get on it first thing in the morning, to command your day, to turn off notifications so you're not distracted. We we live in a distracted world. And just protect your brain, protect and control your 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 time that you're putting into these things. That's a really good point. I really like that that idea of protecting your brain because 
That is what you're doing. I'm pretty bad about... I've gotten awfully addicted to social media. And of course, putting out a podcast and stuff, <laughs> I tend to... I'm always judging it. And the crazy thing we do is we judge ourselves not just against people we know, not against our peers. We often judge ourselves against people who have, are really successful and have been doing something for 10 or 20 years, um, even though we might have just started doing that same thing. Yeah. But the uh, <laughs> I'm very... Um, I'm very happy that I don't like roll over and pick up my phone because I hear this. I hear this from so many people uh, all the time that the first thing they do is start looking at their emails and looking at their messages. And um, uh. it, it just sounds nuts to me. I don't know. It, it, it's always it, it's a you know, I start too early anyway, but I try to rest my phone yeah. uh, at night uh, in the morning. I try and not pick it up for a while, at least an hour, try and go a couple hours. But it definitely, if you, I really like the advice to give yourself a break. Um, if you just, not only social media, but if you just give yourself a break from the phone, try it for a day, see yeah. what that feels like. If that makes you feel antsy, you try it for another day. <laughs> because the phones, you'll also notice that the phones have, um, they've made everything on phones better except the phone calls. So the phone's really not there to, to make a call anymore. It's there to suck you into, you yeah. know, whatever they want you to look at. So, yeah, that, I think that's remember, really good advice. Always remember, too, Joel, that comparison is a thief of joy. So this, the moment we compare ourselves to anyone else, it, it's, it's the thief of joy, you know, and, and you are you. And I say this all the time. People come to me with imposter syndrome all the time. And imposter syndrome is just our own insecurities. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I remind people that we are the best version of ourselves and nobody can do you like you do you. So just do you. <laughs> and those are great. I, I, I really love that philosophy. I mean, it's a good philosophy too when you're training for anything, whether you're training, uh, whether you want to run another mile tomorrow or you, or you want to be a better drummer. Um, you have to compare it to yourself, not everyone else, it especially goes, I mean, yeah, don't compare it to anyone else. Can you do a little better tomorrow? Um, and if you can't, that's okay. But it's better to, if you're going to compare anything, you, you can just try and make yourself a little better, but don't try and make yourself better than, uh, you know, some mythical figure that you've put up there because that's not going to work. Um, yeah. True. You know, the head of Facebook is always going to be richer. I guarantee you. <laughs> That's just how it is. I love it. You're never going to make that much money. <laughs> if you're striving to be a billionaire, well, keep trying, but don't worry about it. Oh, that's funny. And now, some people, when you bring up this, this is kind of interesting to me. Sometimes, when you bring up um, maybe helping someone that you think is struggling, they get offended by that. Really? Does that happen? Oh, it was in your oh, note. oh, oh, um, <laughs> you mean like get, they get offended by you asking them? By you asking them about it, yeah. It depends. Does that happen? People, yeah, it depends where people are, right? Mm -hmm. um, I feel like. I, you know, a lot of times, you know, one of the things I, I do preach is like, don't step over. Don't step over if you see someone suffering. But it's all about more so 
checking in and saying, how are you doing? And if they don't want to talk, it's okay. You know, I think that that's super important to respect them, but for them to know that you're there, because Mm -hmm. if they need support, they know that they have a safe place to go to. So you just have to be careful. I mean, we are not, um, nor should we take on the responsibility of being a clinician and trying to you know, help someone beyond our means, but we can always be a good listener. Um, and we can share ourselves and say, I've struggled with this. I don't know if that's, if you can relate to it or not, but this is what I've, I've been dealing with because you going first sort of opens the door if they choose to share. If not, you just got to respect that and just keep pouring love into them so they know that they can come to you. Yeah, that makes sense. And some people actually have a fear of, of maybe being being um, thought yeah. of as having mental illness or getting a stigma about mental illness. Yeah, and it's because of our society. This is why I do the work I do, because we need to diminish the stigma. We need to have people realize that it's not mentally ill or mentally well. We are gliding across a continuum of mental health throughout our lives, through different life experiences, So if we can move away from thinking that you're either mentally well or mentally sick and you're just dealing, you're dealing with life and sort of showing up at a different place along the continuum, it becomes less of a thing. And we diminish, we diffuse it from you're ill because you know what? We all have bad days. We all have challenging moments. And, you know, I think, I think that's the first thing that we need to do is start to normalize the conversation that we're all dealing with what we're dealing with and it's okay to not be okay on certain days. Yeah, I think that's really important. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I really like that philosophy that, yeah, we all deal with different things on different days and most of us are just doing as well as we can do. Um, and it, you know, if you can help somebody, that's great. Uh, if, yeah, if, if people can accept help, I understand, though, the fear of, um, yeah, getting stigmatized, I guess, which is really too bad. And it, it, it um, it's good that you're working to help people understand that that's not, that we can get rid of that. There, you know, that doesn't need to be there. Um, yeah. Because and, honestly, the only thing the stigma does is embarrass people and make people fearful. And at the end of the day, not get the care that they deserve to live a joyful life. And that's right. not fair. Everyone right. deserves to live a joyful life. And if they're struggling, they should be get, able to get the support without fear or embarrassment. Well, I I occasionally run into people or talk to people, and it, it seems like they don't really believe in the whole concept. Like they think that everyone's, you know, like there's no such thing as mental illness. We're all the same. It's just something that um, I don't know liberals made up or something. <laughs> do you, do you run into that, uh, in your work? Cause it, I really, I've, I've, I've kind of, you know, had these conversation and seen these conversations, uh, happening too on social media where, um, people want to pretend that it's not a real thing that, uh, especially in the, as far as a uh, medical diagnosis goes, which I think is really hard when you get into medical diagnosis, but, um, we yeah. all, have, yeah, you know, this is such a, this is such an important point to make, and I'm glad you raised it. 
Um, I think that we have work to do because we all come to the table with biases around mental health, if they're real or if they're an excuse. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we have people with clinical diagnosis that are struggling, that are, you know, just trying to, just trying to, you know, do life for lack of a better word. And everybody has their own bias. So to diminish it and say, it, you know, it's not true. I think it just is a reflection of ignorance, pure ignorance that you do not understand that mental illness is, is real. Um, I remember I had this conversation with a very dear friend of mine and it, it spoke volumes. I said, I said, uh, she said, well, what are you doing again? I don't understand what you're doing. And I go, I'm trying to bring compassion to the workplace and educate people that it's okay to not be okay and teach resilience because people are struggling with mental illness and they're going to work and they're pretending they're pretending they're okay. They're pretending they don't have a mental illness. And that's adding a whole other layer of stress onto their lives. So if we could just create a compassionate space, they can be who they are in the workplace. And she was like, I don't understand it. She's like, if I am a small business and I have widgets to make and Joe Blow is claiming to have a mental illness and he goes out, I still have to have the widgets made. And she was really, she was really adamant about it. Like that it was like a luxury for him to have to go out on a, on some type of a disability, which I could understand as a small business owner, I was getting her pain too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I kept probing her and I kept probing her. And finally I just said, Hey, do you believe that mental illness is legitimate or is it a cop out? And you know what she said? I don't know. And I said, wow, that's the problem. A lot of people have their own biases that prevent them from being able to extend compassion to other people because they don't either have a healthy relationship to the brain. They have, they have only seen their perspective on mental health and they're not educated. And they're they're part of the problem. So we all have these unconscious biases. Like I grew up with mental health in my family. Mm -hmm. Other people may have their lens on mental health might be the media talking about a school shooting, God forbid. But we all have these biases and that and leaders lead from that seat. And that's why it's so important for us to educate people. We need more education. People need to understand that these are not cop outs. Right. Yes. I think that's a huge important point. Now, I, it's funny because this whole time I haven't noticed that some of your best mental health um, instructors are right there in the room behind you. So <laughs> what are their names? I have to ask for my roommate. All of a sudden there's like an explosion that happens. I have three dogs, two Jack Russells. If you know anything about Jack Russells, they're so big and a puppy, a corgi. Who's just out of control. Oh, the Corgi's a puppy. For those listening on the t- and not seeing the video, well, you barely can see it on the video. She has three dogs behind her that I suddenly noticed. They suddenly started moving around. To, to <laughs> my mind, one of the best one of the best medicines for mental health is Oh my gosh, dogs you have no cats. idea. These guys have helped so much over yeah. this pandemic. Like so much. Yeah. I think it's huge, personally, having animals in the house. You know, plants are important, but animals even more so. Plus, in places, you know, that are cold, they keep you warm. <laughs> totally. Three dog night, right? When I got my third dog, I had a friend say, three dog night. Like, oh, that's, that's funny. <laughs> He's like, 
like, he's like, do you know why they call it three dog night? And I go, why? He's like, because that was a really cold night. So you needed three dogs to keep you warm. I was like, what? I never even thought about that. Okay, uh, for for the younger people listening, that was a band back in the 70s. (laughs) Google it. (laughs) I never thought about that at all. I've heard all kinds of stories about why they named it that. But that was not that one. That's good. That's good. It was a cold night when they were named. <laughs> oh, Bring another dog. Another good thing for mental health is laughter. Plenty of laughter. I know. Totally. That's been pro- it's been it's being proven. It's being researched more and more. Um, yeah, absolutely. I I laugh and I feel a hundred times better. Oh, that's a good point. Um, I'm looking at my notes for anyone who's watching the video. <laughs> a lot of times when the when uh, I'll say uh, big media mentions mental health, it's because something terrible has happened around the world. Um, it's interesting because I'm seeing them talk about it a lot more in the last ten months um than they you know than they did in the previous 10 months and that also is because of what's been happening in the world um so yeah how do how do we get them to talk about it more or you know to put it out there more often um i i watch the today show so they do talk about mental you know, mental health a lot um but i know a lot of media does not they kind of ignore it you know i have to say I think that there's hope when we see more celebrities and athletes coming out with their stories, because that gives the media something to grab onto and mm-hmm. use as a vehicle to talk about mental health. So it's not just like preaching. This is mental illness. We need to destigmatize it. When an athlete who's experienced some type of like trauma or anxiety or depression actually talks about it, um, that gives them a story and that gives them, and then that's a real person telling their story. Right. And so, right. You know, men's mental health has always been something that's dear to me because I know that men do not talk about their mental health. Women, we have no problem. We like, we talk. We just like to talk. <laughs> but, but, you know, when an athlete goes first, then then a, a guy who like has watched that athlete play on the field or play in the court can be like, oh, like, wow, that guy, it seems like he's got it all together. He's got the salary. He's got the girl, whatever. You know, it's very different. So I think... I think with more and more um, mainstream, um, you know, pop, I guess, personalities, you know, speaking openly, Lady Gaga talking about it, you know, then the stories get covered. So I think we're, and now with this anticipated mental health um, crisis from this pandemic, um, I know it's probably going to get a lot more attention, um, you know, beyond just the horrible incidents that occur. So I'm hopeful. I think, I think things are, I think if the pandemic has done anything, it's illuminated mental illness and, and that is a good thing. That's true. I mean, unfortunately it's probably causing more mental illness, but if it brings, if it also shines a light on it, that is a good thing. I'm always a little, I'm always a little, um, in wonderment when a big star athlete, uh, often it's a movie star comes out and admits that they have mental illness. It's like, if you know actors at all, 
of course they have mental illness. That's why they're where they are. I mean, it, you know, it's good and it's bad. It's like that's what drove them. A lot of people that get that, um, you know, achieve what they achieve. It's because they're driven by this, well, mainly, you know, the imposter syndrome. And many of them talk about it, the imposter syndrome. And and um, and it goes a lot deeper than that. But I'm I'm never... Never shocked when an entertainer, actor, or or a athlete, or someone, or you know, a big executive comes out and says they struggled with mental illness. It just it never shocks me. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, so of course you did. That mm-hmm. that's just, you're a person, <laughs> just like the rest of us. Yeah. And I think that's what people forget is that people put celebrities on a you know a huge pedestal. And I mean, I, I've known people like this who are kind of who are fans of all these different people. I've, ne- I've never really been good at being a fan because I've met a few celebrities and I, I just they're they're people who've had a who are having a different life than you. Yes, but they're still people, you know, they're they're human beings just like everyone else. Now there's a big um, I guess it's Britney Spears is in the limelight now for all of the struggles that she's had. And um, mm-hmm. it's like. That's a surprise to you. <laughs> this is, I mean, it's great because people are kind of jumping, jumping to her side and saying that that you know, this kid has really had a hard time. She should have some help, and that's a good thing. That's so. In that, when that happens, it's great. It, you know, that it's it's always. I guess it's always good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess so, I think about the uh, Philadelphia Eagle last year, who. Um, pulled himself off the field because of an anxiety attack and then tweeted about it the next day mm-hmm. that his right. it, the, he lives with anxiety and that anxiety had gotten too much. So he had to pull himself out of the game. That was such a human experience for men to see that, you know what? He struggles, he manages, and this time he couldn't manage it. Yeah, it is. That's a really, uh, really good point. Um, it's sometimes why I just am thankful that I'm not hugely famous because I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how, how people take that pressure. I've always said I'd rather be rich than famous. That I, yeah. I've always thought that would be just an incredible amount of fame, of pressure, and it's got to be a bizarre. Some people who have always been famous. Um, Zuckerberg is actually an example. You know, he's been famous and rich since he was in college. So he's he's been completely cut off from normal life since he was in his 20s. That has to really, you know, change the way you see the world and change the way you relate to people and things like that. It's got to be difficult. So thank goodness I don't have that problem. Well, listen. Uh, I think we're going to wrap it up here. I know we've both got other other places we got to be. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been it's been fantastic talking to you. This is. Were you still talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and on my show today, I've had Michelle Dickerson. She is a mental health advocate. Her website. Is, what's your website again? MichelleEDickinson.com. MichelleEDickinson.com, and she has a memoir that she's written. She has a lot of great programs for, well, for pretty much anyone um, that needs help with mental, that needs mental illness help, or uh, just advocacy, you know, help help with uh, just with being open about it and things Resilience. like that. 
resilience, passion, exactly. Yeah, that's great. So thank you so much for listening. Don't be shy. Share the podcast. You can like it on uh, Apple Podcasts, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Thanks for listening. And be good to each other. And be good to yourselves.